This morning, Tim kind of shared a little bit, and, and uh, Tim, I love it, because you always got like the first couple minutes of my sermon, and it, it's so good. The, the, these ideas of pat answers, and this idea that when we pray for healing, when we pray for the sick, is this something we truly believe that God can do? Or is it just sort of one of those things where it's almost like we're grasping at straws because we just need something? My hope is that when, if you're here this morning and you're lifting up your voices to God and as you're praying that you realize that God is someone you can trust. That he is in fact who he says he is, that he is a healer, that he is good, he is full of grace, and that he is full of mercy. We're in a series right now, we've just sort of begun it, called Believe. And over the next few weeks, we are, we're going to be looking at the book of John and we're going to be looking at the signs, the miracles that Jesus performed. As John recorded them, and and as it was said before, John recorded these things so that we might believe. After having taken a full lifetime to reflect on the words and the actions of Jesus, John puts into words through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit all of these things that he, he has taken And at the very end of his gospel, he writes this. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. You see, John wanted us to know rightly who God was. He wanted us to have an understanding of who Jesus was, that he was, in fact, the Messiah. He was the Son of God, the one that they were waiting for, the one who would bring peace and restoration and wholeness. But when he says he wants us to believe in him, it wasn't just this cognitive exercise. It wasn't just an acknowledgement that Jesus was a good man, that he existed. It's not even as simple as acknowledging the fact that Jesus is God. Because James tells us that even the demons know the right things about God. But for them, they remained unchanged. And so when John is saying, I have written all these things so that you might believe, what John is saying is that there needs to be a transformative action on our behalf. That this this word believe is more than just a head knowledge. If you were here last week, I shared with you that the word that's translated in the Greek, believe, is actually this word pistuo. And it actually has this meaning of complete trust. Or it carries with this idea of going all in. With complete surrender, complete abandon. This is what John is wanting for us to understand. It is in this action of having complete trust in Jesus. Of going all in, of complete surrender. That we will believe and we will have life. This morning, I actually am going to need a few volunteers. So I'm going to invite Isaiah to come forward. Let's see, who else do we have? We don't have a lot of young kids, so I need to... All right, come on. Zoobs, Elijah, (laughs) Rachel, Sarah, you guys can come on up too. Come on up. While they're coming all up, I'm also going to need a few other volunteers. So I'm going to invite Rudy and Steve, Ryan... And Tim, why don't you come on up too? I know you're new, you get picked on. So you guys, you bigger guys can come stand over here. 
Now, you guys, what I want you to do is I want you guys to stand kind of in front of each other. So you're going to turn to face each other. Yeah, stand here. You want to be about an arm's length away from each other. Hold a little bit closer than that. There you go. All right, Elijah, Isaiah, you're going to do that too. Now, you're going to get a little bit closer to each other. No, towards these girls. Don't worry, they don't have cooties. (laughs) All right, so keep your arms up. You want to kind of hold on to each other. You're going to make a little bit of a ridge. You guys are a little bit tall, so you're going to have to like lower your arms a little bit. All right. So I'm going to get up here. Are you ready? Are you sure? All right. I'm not actually going to do it with you guys, all right? You guys can go sit down. Now, guys, I have a little bit more faith and trust in you. Okay, see, Amanda's got her phone up because this may be a sermon fail. But come on. Do we need a few more guys up here? I don't know. You be the judge. All right, so you guys are going to yeah, kind of hold your hands out. You need to lock arms. Now, here's the key is you don't want to be straight. You guys sort of have to be at a little bit of an offset from each other. Because if you're facing each other straight on and I fall into your arms, or you're going to go, bam, all right? <laughs> And I don't want that to happen. All right, you guys good? You're going to get a little bit closer. A little bit, you guys are going to have to like actually go down a little bit. You're going to have to like squat, get ready, right? Like, you're going to take the most of it. You guys ready? I hope so. Oh. Jump. So you guys have done trust falls, right? Has anyone ever done one? They're scary, right? As much as you want to believe and trust in these guys, there's a little bit of a hesitation. I am stalling. Whoa. All right. Yeah, you, gotta, you better count me down because otherwise this is not happening. Okay, we're gonna, no, not 10. Shorter, like three. Three, two, one. All right, now you got to put me down. Oh, there we go. Woo. Thank you, gentlemen. (laughs) All right. I didn't see the looks of terror on their faces, but... You know, I I picked those gentlemen, actually, I had written it down in my sermon notes, and I was really praying that they would be here this morning. (laughs) I know there's lots of you who who could catch me, but I sort of had this belief, I had this understanding, this, this trust in them. I believe that they would actually catch me. I know that when I brought those kids up, you were kind of looking at me like, you're not going to actually do this. <laughs> and isn't that a little bit of the way with our faith? There's these things that we want to trust in, and maybe they're really not the best things to trust in. They're, they're not the things that can carry us. As I was sharing, I, I was a little bit scared. I really wasn't that scared. I, w- I was playing it up a little bit. Because I believed that those guys would catch me. I had faith. I was willing to go all in. But the reality is, is that I could believe all I wanted, that they would catch me. But my belief meant nothing if I didn't actually fall. 
This is the image that John is trying to capture with us when he's talking about all of the signs and the miracles. He doesn't want you just to stand there and to know that Jesus is God. He wants you to go all in. The first miracle that John records is a wedding feast. This is the first time that Jesus is going to reveal his glory and perform these miracles that will lead us into that place of complete trust. And so I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 2. If you have them, and it will of course be on the screen. But as you're turning there, I want to set the stage a little bit for you. I want to kind of give you the backdrop of what's happening You see, John the Baptist, is he's down at the Jordan River. He's been making way the path. He has been been declaring the coming king. He's fulfilling the prophecy upon his life in that he is is preparing the people for their Messiah who who was coming. And he's down at the Jordan River and he's baptizing his disciples and he is baptizing them. And along comes Jesus And Jesus gets baptized. And we we know from the account that the dove comes and descends upon him. And John says, the one whom the dove rests on is the Messiah, the Son of God. And so Jesus goes away. And and the next day, John is down at the river again. And he's, he's hanging out with his disciples. They're talking. Maybe they were baptizing more people. But they're talking. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes along. And as Jesus is coming along, John turns to his, the disciples that are with him and he says, look, there's the Messiah. There's the Lamb of God. And immediately those two disciples leave John and they follow after Jesus. They go and they spend time with Jesus. It says they spend all day with him. Now, I'm not sure what happened in the course of that day with Jesus. But it must have been pretty amazing because when Andrew, the disciple, one of the two disciples that left John and followed Jesus, he leaves from that meeting with Jesus and he like takes and he goes to his brother. Without hesitation, he rushes there and he finds Simon Peter and he tells Simon Peter, I have found the Messiah. Come and meet him. I'm convinced that this is what the Christian life really is all about. It's an invitation to come and experience Jesus and to believe in him. This is what Andrew does. After having spent just a few hours with Jesus, he comes and he tells Simon Peter, come, you've got to experience him. You've got to meet this guy. He's changed my life already. He's the one we've been waiting for. He is the Messiah. Come and experience him for yourself. Psalm 34 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. This is the Christian life. It's an invitation to come and meet Jesus. But so Andrew, he's found Peter and he's brought Peter and Peter is there. He's with Jesus now. And so we have three disciples. We have Andrew and we have John and we have Peter and they're following Jesus. And the next day they're they're going out and they're headed to Galilee. 
And along the way, they find Philip and they find Nathaniel. And both Philip and Nathaniel begin to follow Jesus. And so we have this crowd of disciples who have begun to gather around him. These five men who are following him and they're going with him and they're talking with him, they're learning from him. And this is what brings us to John chapter 2. As they're headed down to Galilee, it says in John chapter 2, On the third day a wedding took place in in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. So here we have Jesus and his disciples they have traveled to Galilee. They're in this little town, and we don't actually know how big Cana was. There's different arguments for how big it might have been. It may have been quite small. It might have been a little bit bigger town. But they're in this town, and there's a wedding taking place. And for some reason, Mary has been invited, and Jesus and the disciples have been invited. And so maybe this wedding was for a fem- member of the family, Maybe it was a family friend. I always wondered, why did Jesus' disciples get invited? It just seems a little bit odd. Have you ever done your wedding planning when you're trying to figure out who's going to be invited? Uh, Emily? (laughs) I pointed you out because you looked at each other. There's this debate that goes on. Who should we invite? Well, I don't want to invite that person. But here they are. These disciples who have just begun to follow Jesus. It's been less than a week and they're already being invited to weddings with him. They're going and they're doing life with him. They're following in his footsteps. This is one of the things that strikes me the most about this encounter is that the relationship that the disciples have with Jesus is one that affects every area, every sphere of their life. They've just begun this relationship with him and yet they're traveling with him and they're partying with him. They're experiencing life with him. They are following him into social settings. Jesus didn't just say to them, hey, I know we just met. I know you're following me. But listen, I've got a party to go to. I've got this wedding to go to. So why don't you guys just hang out for a few days and I'll find you again at the temple. And then we can pick up where we left off. No, he invites them in to be a part of his life and into the, the, thing, the spheres of everywhere that he was going. I often think it's not just like school. We send our kids to school and they come back home. No, when the disciples went to follow Jesus, they did it with their entire lives. They didn't just meet him at the temple for a few hours each day and then go home and talk about it. They, they, they lived with him. They breathed with him. And so Jesus is modeling what discipleship looks like. It's inviting people into our lives. It's inviting them into the the very core of who we are and the things that we're doing. Every area of our lives, not just Sundays. But that's a side note. And so back to this wedding, and 
and there's this wedding, and, and it's a celebration. It's a feast. And one of the things you need to know about weddings in ancient Israel is that they were quite the party. They were a blast. Weddings usually started at the end of the Sabbath, often, and, and because the reason why they would do that is because they would last for seven days. They wanted to get in as much partying as they could. And so weddings would start with the groom and the groomsmen traveling through town. They would head to the house of the bride, where the bride and the bridesmaids were heading. And they would do so at night with their torches. This was not like, you know, a lynch mob. They were going to celebrate. And so they would run through, and this would be so much joy in their lives, headed to find the bride and the bridesmaid. And they would get to the house of the bride and they, the groom and the groomsmen would, would gather them and the families and then they would head back through the streets to the house of the groom and to the groom's family. And then once they got there, this feast would begin. And for most of the Jewish families, this was like the biggest feast they could ever provide. They may have gone like, you know, with almost nothing on their tables for days at a time so that they could prepare for this feast. And so once they got there, this, this feast would begin and, and their guests would be in this house. It would be packed with guests dressed in their nicest clothing. There would be music, there would be laughter, there'd be celebration and joy. There'd be good foods good, and tons of wine. This is one of the marks of the Jewish wedding was that there was lots of wine. And so the wedding would last as long as seven days or really until the food and the wine ran out. That was kind of the end. When, when all of the wine was gone, when it had all been drunk, that was sort of the end of the party. And so Jesus and the disciples are there and they're celebrating. And it doesn't say that Jesus and his disciples were drunk, but we know that they're partaking in the festivities. They're present. They're, they may have drank. We don't know. But as they're celebrating, as they're, they're joyously rejoicing in this, in this marriage, somehow Mary finds out that the wine has gone. The wine has run out. It has stopped. And for the wine to run out in the midst of the celebration was a huge party foul. This was shameful and embarrassing. And so the other thing you have to understand about a Jewish wedding was that this was a very, they lived in a shame and honor culture. Honor was one of the highest goals to attain. And so it was a way of life in that you gave honor and you received honor. And to receive honor was a huge thing. On the other hand, shame was often worse than death. Now I am doing a very minimal job of giving you a, a picture of what shame and honor culture looks like. But the reality was is that in these cultures, you never wanted to bring shame upon somebody else. And you certainly didn't want to bring shame upon your name or your family's name. I'll never forget my first introduction to an honor-shame culture. And it was when I was on a mission trip to Mongolia about 20 years ago. As part of our work in Mongolia, we were there, we were actually clearing land and we were getting ready to, to pour a foundation for uh, what would eventually become a warehouse for the Mongolian Bible Society. And so while we were there, 
what they had done is they had set aside this land and they had actually put up this fence to keep it safe. So they had the land that was surrounded by this giant fence and they had this yurt, this house that was on the property where we were building. And they had these live-in kind of caretakers and security guards. They were there to make sure that the, the land that was designated for the, this warehouse was safe. That nobody would come in and try to steal it or, or to like, you know, claim rights to it or anything like that. And I'll never forget, it was the day before we headed out for construction and our team was split into two and I was part of leading the team that was doing the construction at the site. And our host came to us and there was two of us leaders who were at the construction site and two leaders who were elsewhere. And our host came to us and they said, just be prepared. What you will experience as the leaders of this group is you will most likely be invited by the family into their yurt. And when you're invited into their yurt, they're going to offer you what is called ereg, which is a traditional Mongolian drink. Now you need to understand that when you go into their yurt, this is the most highest honor that they could bestow upon you. Inviting you into their house and presenting you with this drink. It will be rude of you not to drink it. It would bring shame upon them and it will bring shame upon us. They said, you don't have to drink all of it, but you've got to try it. And so sure enough, every day we would get down to the the construction site, we would go in, and I remember that there was all of these noises that you sort of had to make announcing yourselves as you went into into their houses and into their properties. And we'd get there, and every morning, we'd be invited into this yurt. And we would sit there, and they would present us with this, with this drink. Now, Ereg is not coffee. It is not tea. It is fermented mare's milk. As a 20-year-old who had not experienced very much of the world... This was a brand new experience for me. It tasted like a mixture of warm beer and warm milk. Two tastes that I don't really enjoy. But for the Mongolians, it was an honor to extend hospitality to us and to share with us what they had. And so just like it would have been really dishonoring and would have brought shame upon them for us to have to refused it, to not to drink it, that was like the wine running out at a Jewish wedding. The wine running out was the biggest shame and embarrassment that you could bring upon a family. And Mary finds out. And she comes to Jesus and she says, Jesus, you got to do something. And initially, it seems like Jesus' response is pretty harsh. He replies, Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. And we kind of get a little bit tense here when we, when we hear Jesus saying, Woman. But it's, we read it through the lens of our own cultural context, and the reality is, is that Jesus, he didn't view women the way we often view them when we say this. It's not like somebody is saying, woman, go make me a sandwich. 
Jesus is actually speaking tenderly and softly to her. He is speaking with love and and grace. You see, Jesus wasn't actually giving her a no. And he wasn't dishonoring his mom. In this moment, what we actually see is that Jesus is actually honoring his father. See, Jesus knew why he had come. He knew what he had, was coming to do and when he would be glorified. And John actually tells us later in, the, in his gospel that Jesus would tell his disciples in the upper room. He would tell them that it was at that time that his time to be glorified had come. And you can read that in John chapter 12, verse 23. And so when Jesus is responding to, to his mother here, he is actually responding in a way that is honoring to his father. Because he understood that the fullness of his glory would be revealed in his act of love on the cross. But here we see Mary coming. And she says, Jesus, you got to do something. They don't have any more wine. So even when Mary seemingly gets a no, this is what I love about her. We sort of take it as Jesus has said, no, Mary, I'm not doing anything. My time has not yet come. She continues to show her pastuo in Jesus. She continues to show her trust and her faith in him and his willingness to act. And it says, she said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Mary is not thwarted by Jesus' response to her. I've often wondered, what do you think Mary was expecting Jesus to do? I think if it was nowadays, we would be expecting Jesus to run out with his disciples to the local, ta- like to the local store, get some more wine. Maybe head to the next town. We've run all out, but go get some more Jesus. Or what kind of miracles had Jesus already performed in their household that would lead Mary to believe? Or was it simply the fact that she knew from her birth experience, that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the Son of God, and nothing was impossible for him. I doubt that Mary could ever have imagined the amazing thing Jesus would do. But Mary believes and she trusts in Jesus. Mary does her own kind of trust fall. She doesn't know what Jesus is going to do. She just knows that he will act. She puts her trust in her son. She puts her trust in Jesus. And so we can learn a lot from Mary. We can learn a lot about what it looks like to believe. I wonder what happens when we hit a wall. What happens when you get a no or a seemingly no from God? What happens when you are praying and asking God to move and he doesn't answer in the ways that you were expecting? Do you get angry? Do you throw in the towel and say, well, Jesus, you you must not be real because you didn't respond? Do you give up? Do you make things happen in your own strength? 
Or do you listen to the words that Mary declares here when she says, do whatever he tells you? She's not thwarted by a no. She's not thwarted by a hesitancy in Jesus. She knows that she has put her full trust and her whole belief in him. John continues the story. It says, Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the wine and had been tur- that had been turned in- or tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. You see, Mary's pastuo, her belief in Jesus and that he would act, leads to Jesus performing this incredible miracle. And maybe we could say Jesus was always going to do it and he was always going to put on his, the display of his glory. But regardless, it is, it is through Mary's faith and her coming to Jesus and writing her request at his, at his feet that he acts. And in doing so, Jesus performs this incredible sign and display of both his power and his kingdom. We could easily look at the, the context and say, well, we can look at why he chose the six, six stone jars. And they were all always used for ceremonial cleaning. And so maybe there was priests in the house, or maybe this was a family that was really concerned about, about looks. Or maybe we could even talk about the fact that this is Jesus showing that he has come to fulfill the law. That the law is no longer relevant because he is the fulfillment of it, but... When I look at this story, as I read through this story, those things certainly play out and we can read into that context. But what is simply astounding here is that Jesus turns the water into wine. And not just any wine, the best wine. Have you ever wondered what the servants must have felt like when they were taking that glass of wine to the banquet master? Have you ever thought about that? I think there would have been a little bit of a giddiness to them. You have no idea what this is. But maybe there would have been a little bit of a fear. How is he going to respond? Did they know that it had turned to wine, or was it just for them water? They had just filled the cup and they brought it to the banquet master. I would have imagined they would have been hesitant. I would have imagined that they would have been worried about what would have happened with the response. But the master of the banquet, he drinks the wine and he's, he's surprised. It is the best wine he has ever tasted. It's not the wine that they save for when everybody's drunk and nobody knows the difference. You can ask caterers, you can ask bars where they, they serve for alcohol and wine for weddings, and this is true. This is what they do. They will save the worst wine for the end. Because by the time people have already had enough to drink, they don't care what they're drinking anymore, as long as they have something to drink. 
They're too drunk to notice. But here, Jesus turns this wine into the best wine. And what, what he's doing is he's actually showing his provision and his abundance. Throughout Scripture, we actually see wine as this symbolic piece of the immense outpouring of the love of God. It, throughout Scripture, we see wine associated with his provision, his care, his abundance. Deuteronomy 7, 13 and 14, when, he, when, when Moses is speaking about the blessings of God and, and following Jesus and, and being the people of God, he says this, he says, He will love you and bless you and increase your numbers. He will bless the fruit of your womb, the crops of your land, your grain, new wine, and olive oil. You will be blessed more than any people. You see it in Jeremiah. We see it in the Psalms where the Scripture and the authors of the Scripture are constantly referring to wine and the abundance of good wine as the, as the provision and the care and the blessing of the Lord. We also see it as actually a sign of the coming Messiah. One of the prophecies regarding the coming Messiah can be found in Amos chapter 9. And in Amos chapter 9 we read this. It says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one who treads grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and will flow from all the hills. This is a picture of what it will be like when the Messiah comes. It will be a place where wine is dripping from the mountains and flowing from the hills. That is an awful lot of wine. That is an awful lot of, of abundance and provision. And this is what Jesus is doing. And so Jesus has looked, he has seen the, stick, the six stone jars each one of them capable of holding 20 to 30 gallons of wine. And they are filled to the brim. And so that means that Jesus turned 120 to 180 gallons of water into wine. And I was going to bring a wine bottle for you to see, but you've probably all seen a wine bottle. Your standard size wine bottle is 750 milliliters which means that if my math is correct, 120 to 180 gallons of wine would be the equivalent of 600 to 900 bottles of wine. Now, we don't know how big this wedding was, but most scholars say it was anywhere from 100 people to 300 people. Well, that is at least three bottles of wine per person. When you're already drunk and you've already gotten past the point of caring, this was an abundance. And this is what the kingdom of God is like. This is what God is, is, Jesus is showing. Is he's saying, God wants to overwhelm you with his abundance. I'm not saying that Jesus wants to give you all the health or wealth that you could ever want. I'm not saying that in any ways. But his kingdom is one of abundance and blessing. His abundance of peace, his abundance of hope and joy, the abundance of his grace and his mercy. You see, the earthly wine had run out, but through Jesus there was abundance of new wine. There was no way it would run out. 
Pete Scazzaro, he's an author and a pastor, he writes this. He says, if you want, or if you can understand God's kingdom is one where the wine never runs out, you can hit setbacks. You can hit disappointments, walls, and not give up or become discouraged. In fact, you will emerge and have hope and a certainty and a joy and a love through it all. If you stick with Jesus, if you trust in Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, if you go all in with Jesus, the glory of Jesus will come in and through it like you would never imagine. You see, when you believe in Jesus, when you put your trust in him, it doesn't negate the fact that there will be uncertainty or fear in your lives, but we can trust that he is there to provide for us. That he will carry us through whatever circumstances might come our way. One of the other neat things that happens in this story is when the servants take the wine to the banquet master. He tastes the wine and he discovers that, discovers that this is the best wine. You haven't cheaped out. And he calls the bridegroom aside. He, he brings him to him. And he, he just gives him praise. He knows that this is what happens is that they wait until the end to give out the bad wine. But this guy, he has saved the best for last. And so the banquet master is giving praise to the groom and to the groom's family. See, Jesus turned the water into wine. But the bridegroom got all the credit. The bridegroom got all of the blessing and all of the honor in that moment. Jesus did all of the work, but the groom got the benefit. And I think this is such a picture of the gospel as well, is that Jesus has come to do all of the work. And we reap the benefits of the work that Jesus has done. John goes on to conclude his account by saying this. He says, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, where they stayed for a few days. Can you imagine what that debrief was like? I picture them down there and sitting around maybe by a campfire and reliving what had happened at the wedding. They are telling stories. They are reminiscing about the events that had just happened. They're talking about how Mary had this faith that Jesus would do something. Maybe they're even talking about the servant's face and the servant's look when they were taking the wine, when Jesus turned the water into wine. Or maybe they were contemplating and laughing about the, ma- the banquet master's face when he had tasted it. But what happens here is that John tells us that Jesus revealed his glory. He said, this is who I am. I am the God who has come, the Messiah that you are waiting for, the one who will bring an abundant kingdom. I am the one that you have been waiting for. And so Jesus demonstrated his power and the disciples who witnessed it pastuoed in him. 
they believed in him. They put their faith and their trust in him. I doubt that the disciples had it all figured out. I doubt that they fully understood the magnitude of what they were getting into. What would this mean for their lives? Sure, Jesus has just turned water into wine, but what does that mean? How How is this going to play out in their lives? John actually tells us that they didn't understand. It wasn't until Jesus' glory was completely revealed that they understood all of the events that had happened. And yet here we know that they had put their faith in Him, they had put their trust in Him, and they followed Him. Their disciples committed their lives to Jesus. To walking with Him, to learning from Him. They went all in. And just like the disciples who, who went all in, who believed in Jesus, that he was who he said he was, we are invited. This is what John is inviting you into. It's into a life that does not know what might transpire or where God might leave you, lead you. He will never leave you, but where he might lead you. And it's an invitation to walk with him, to follow him, to trust in him completely. To go all in, to believe. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you find you've already gone all in. You're saying, yeah, Chris, you're preaching to the choir. I believe and I'm living my life for Jesus. My response to you is great. Now be like Andrew and go tell somebody. Go invite somebody else to come and experience Jesus. To walk with him. To taste and see that he is good. And maybe you're here this morning and there was a time where you believed. There was a time where you had gone all in and you, had, you were following Jesus with your whole heart. With your whole mind and soul. You were all in with him. There was a complete surrender to his will and to his ways. But for some reason, you kind of walked away from that. Maybe you hit a wall where God didn't answer a prayer the way you thought he should. Or maybe you just started to believe some lies about who he is or who you are. But for some reason or another, you've stopped believing. You've stopped being all in and you just sort of have that cognitive assurance that, yeah, God, you're sure, you're good, you're Jesus. I believe in you. Maybe this morning you need to repent of trying to do it on your own and turn back to Jesus and to trust. And maybe you're here this morning and you've never truly believed in Jesus. You've never truly surrendered your life to him. Or maybe you've had that cognitive assurance, but you've never fully gone in. And there's an invitation and there's an opportunity to do just that this morning. It's never too late to say, Jesus, I believe in you and I put my trust in you. 
I will go where you go and I will follow you and I will do whatever you say. Just like I didn't actually know if these guys were going to catch me. I had a pretty good idea that they could. But there's still the possibility that that video ends up on, on YouTube and Facebook with me falling on my back. We don't know what it looks like to follow Jesus. But we know that his kingdom is one of abundance and blessing. And I can promise you that you will never regret going all in to believe in him. And it starts with simply saying, yes, Jesus, I believe. Let's pray. <coughs> well, Jesus, I, we honor and worship you this morning. And I come and I acknowledge that you have done some pretty amazing things. And if I were to stop and consider all of the amazing things that you have done, I would probably be like John and say that there is no book that could contain everything that you have done. And sometimes I have ascribed these things to other people and, and, and have given the glory that was yours to others. But through it all, you are good and you are gracious and you are kind. And you just want to bless. You want to abundantly give of your love and your grace and your mercy, your hope and your peace. But there's always that invitation to come and to believe in you. And so Lord, would we get over our fears, would we get over our self and our, our pride and our arrogance and would we come to you and would we acknowledge you are who you say you are. And we do believe. We thank you, Jesus, and we pray in your name. Amen.